0: this week, but there's not going to be anything that matters more than God, than Jesus, the Bible, than spiritual things, and you acknowledge that. That's the reason that you're here tonight, and I'm thankful for that, thankful to be able to spend some time in worship to our God. We're continuing our study throughout the Gospel of Mark, so if you'd like to turn there with me, we're going to be in Mark the 7th chapter. If you want to turn there, Mark chapter 7, we're going to be reading from the section of Scripture that was so well read for us just a few minutes ago. This is verses 24 through 30 of Mark chapter 7. If you'd like to turn there with me. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. If you've had the opportunity to be with us over the last couple of Sunday nights, we've set our sights on Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, which all stems from a conversation that Jesus was having with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were trying to confront Jesus. They were gathering to Jesus at the very beginning of the chapter to point their fingers at Him. Why are you allowing your disciples to break our traditions? Why are you allowing your disciples to eat without first washing their hands? Jesus, of course, responds to that as we've noted over the last couple weeks with a rebuke. But it's not a rebuke of His disciples for breaking the traditions. It's a rebuke of the Pharisees for making void the Word of God in their lives so that they can establish and live based on their own traditions. Whenever the Pharisees fade out of the picture, Jesus is left with a large group of people standing in front of Him that He wants to teach. More than likely, this crowd of people saw the exchange between Him and the Pharisees. They saw what was going on. They had questions. They had concerns. So Jesus wants to meet that. Then it narrows a little bit more just a few verses later. Just Jesus and His disciples in a very private setting inside of a house, Jesus wants to make the same point about what defiles a person. He says it's not what you put into your body that defiles you. It's not the food that you eat that makes you unclean. But what defiles you, Jesus teaches, is the sin that comes out of your body Which originates in your heart. You're not unclean because of what you put into your body. You're unclean because of the sin that comes out of your body. And you remember that really important note that Mark gives us in verse number 19 of Mark chapter 7 that in that statement, Jesus declared all foods as clean. We said last week the Jews had all of these rules, according to the book of Leviticus, about foods they could eat and foods they couldn't eat foods that were clean and foods that were unclean, as Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant according to and in fulfillment of the promise in Jeremiah chapter 31, He declares all food as clean. So it seems like to me, whenever we look at the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 7, Jesus is eliminating a distinction that the Jews made between clean and unclean foods. And I think that's there for a reason, because it leads to something that's even more important. It leads to something that's even more significant. Beginning in Mark chapter 7 and verse 24, all the way to Mark chapter 8 and verse 10, Jesus eliminates the distinction that the Jews made between clean and unclean people. Of course, the Jews viewed themselves as being God's people. They were the ones who were pure. They were the ones who were clean and holy and righteous. If you weren't a Jew, that meant you were a Gentile. And if you were a Gentile, you weren't worth the dirt you were standing on. You couldn't be as holy as God's people. You can't be clean and pure like the Jews can. In the Jews' mind, they were clean because of their ethnicity, and the Gentiles were unclean. Well, in Mark chapter 7 and verse 24, Jesus enters into Gentile country. He goes north into the region of Tyre and Sidon in order to demonstrate the fact that this distinction doesn't need to exist. This distinction between clean and unclean people is something that needs to be eliminated. It's something that needs to be done away with. He eliminates the distinction between clean and unclean foods in the first 23 verses, in order to eliminate the distinction between clean and unclean people through the rest of the chapter and the first ten verses of chapter 8. Tonight, in our section of Scripture, as Jesus enters into Gentile country, He's going to be talking with and associating with a Gentile. But not just a Gentile, but a Gentile woman. Someone who was specifically a Syrophoenician. As we study through this text, we're certainly going to talk about the details. We're going to tell the story that takes place here. But I also want us to think in application about our lives. What can we learn from this story, from the faith that this woman places in Jesus, about the faith that we should be placing in Jesus every day that we live? What can we learn from her faith about the kind of faith that pleases our Lord, the kind of faith that pleases our Savior. That's what we're going to be discussing tonight in this short section of Scripture in Mark 7, verses 24-30. through But before we get there, let's notice just a little bit more about the context. What sets up this scene that we find in this passage? Notice again, verse 24. We said Jesus is entering into Gentile country. He's going north into the region of Tyre and Sidon. When He entered into that region, the Bible says He entered into a house. More than likely, this was a Gentile household. A righteous Jew would never enter into the house or even consider spending the night at the house of a Gentile. But yet, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He is tearing down this distinction in the mind of the Jews between clean and unclean people based on ethnicity. Based on being a Jew or a Gentile. So He enters into this Gentile's house in verse number 24, but He was doing it secretly. It seems He wanted a little bit of time to relax. We know Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is someone who's always busy. Someone who's always surrounded with people. He enters into this house secretly. Didn't want anyone to know. But notice how verse 24 ends. It's so powerful, isn't it? It's so telling about who our Lord and Savior actually is. He wanted to enter this house in secret and not let anybody know. Yet He could not be hidden. As Jesus moves north from Galilee into the region of the Gentiles, even there, His reputation preceded Him. Perhaps the way that we should picture this is one person heard about Jesus coming into town. That one person told another person, it spread like wildfire. And all of a sudden, outside of this house where Jesus is, there's a large crowd of Gentiles wanting to hear His teaching, wanting to access His healing. And it's in that crowd where we find this woman. A Gentile, generally. A Syrophoenician, specifically. We not only learn about her ethnicity, but we also learn about her problem, don't we? She has a little daughter who has an unclean spirit. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. She's approaching Jesus so that Jesus could heal her daughter. We learn about this woman's ethnicity. We learn about this woman's problem. But what about her faith? What about the trust, the belief that she demonstrates in Jesus throughout this passage? What do we learn about that? Let me suggest four ideas to you. Number one, whenever we look at the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, we see a faith that is built on truth. There's three words in Mark chapter 7 and verse 25 that set up the rest of the passage. If these three words didn't exist in verse 25, then the rest of the story wouldn't exist down to verse 30. Notice about midway through the verse. This is Mark chapter 7 and verse 25. The Bible says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, three words, heard of Him. This woman heard about Jesus. She heard about who Jesus was. She heard about what Jesus was capable of, and that's why she's coming before him. That's why she's falling down at his feet, begging and pleading him to heal her daughter. We don't know exactly what this woman heard about Jesus. Of course, we can speculate. Maybe she heard some of the things we've studied together in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe she heard about how this man fed more than 5,000 people with only five loaves and two fish. Maybe she heard about all of those different times when big crowds would gather to Jesus and they had all kinds of illnesses and diseases and many of them were possessed by demons and Jesus healed every single one of them. Maybe she heard about the paralyzed man who was let down through a hole in the roof that had been dug out in the city of Capernaum. How Jesus told him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And that's exactly what He did. Maybe she heard about how Jesus had brought another daughter, a 12-year-old daughter, back to life. How He raised her from the dead. Maybe she heard about how in almost that same moment, Jesus healed a woman who had had a bleeding disorder for 12 years. Maybe she heard about the last time that Jesus entered into Gentile country, into the region of the Gerasenes, and He cast out a legion of demons from an individual. Remember, the demons went into the swine, and the swine ran down the hill and drowned in the Sea of Galilee. There's so many things that she could have heard of. Whatever she hears motivates her. She heard about Jesus, heard about who Jesus was, and as a result, comes and falls down at His feet. She had a faith that was built on truth. A faith that was built on the truth of who Jesus was and what Jesus was capable of doing. What about us? What about your faith? What about my faith? Is it a faith that is built on truth. I remember one time I was having a conversation with some Mormon missionaries, and we were talking about the Book of Mormon. You know, alongside of the Bible, the Mormons have several other books that they add to their canon that they view as being just as important and just as inspired as the Bible is. And so they were telling me about the Book of Mormon and they were telling me that I need to read it, which I have read the majority of it, and they were telling me that I needed to believe what the Book of Mormon says and live my life based on that book. So I asked them a question. Why do you believe that book's true? Why are you placing your faith in the Book of Mormon like you would place your faith in the Bible? You know what they told me? Well, we prayed about it. And we just have really good feelings about it whenever we read it, it it makes us happy and we've had good experiences with it in the past whenever we read it we just we just feel like it makes a tremendous difference in our lives can you see the problem with that they're placing their faith on this book why because of feelings because of emotions, because of experiences. And that's what we see so often whenever we look into the religious world or maybe when we look in our own lives. People build their faith based on feelings, based on emotions, based on what they feel in their hearts. When the Bible says that the, the heart is sick, who can understand it? He who follows his heart is going to walk down a difficult path. The book of Proverbs tells us a couple of different times. People place their faith in what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. tradition. The way that it's always been. This is what my parents have always believed. Or this is what my grandparents did. People place their faith in what a preacher says or what a religious group teaches. If we want to be like the Syrophoenician woman, if we want to have that kind of faith, then we have to have a faith that is built on truth. A faith that is built on the words that God has delivered to us in the pages of this book. Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, you've heard this verse before, it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Notice that faith doesn't come from feeling. Faith doesn't come from experience. Faith doesn't come from tradition or this is the way that it's always been done. Faith comes through hearing the Word of God, the Word of Christ. If we're going to have a kind of faith that pleases God, the kind of faith that Jesus wants us to have, then it has to be built on the solid foundation of what he's, what he's delivered to us in the pages of this book. Once we place our faith on that solid foundation, then we can build up. Then we can start to add more to it. Number two, the Syrophoenician woman, her faith was a faith of persistence. We learn that in Mark chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. The Bible says, as the Syrophoenician woman heard about Jesus in verse 25, she came and fell down at His feet in verse 25. Verse 26 says, now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged Him to cast out the demon from her daughter. The way that that phrase is constructed in Greek, she begged, him it wasn't just a one-time thing she's not just coming to Jesus begging him Jesus says no she walks away with her shoulders slouched this was something she did persistently this is something she did continually she was begging him and begging him and begging him to help we go to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 15 Matthew says that at first Jesus was ignoring her so you know what she did she started on Jesus's disciples Started begging them, please do something about this. Please do something with my daughter who is possessed by this demon. She begged the disciples to do something to the point that they ended up coming to Jesus saying, Send this woman away. She won't stop begging. She won't stop crying out to us. You need to send her away. As she presents her request to Jesus, it was a request not only of urgency, but a request of persistence, not just a one timer but something she did over and over and over again as she fell down at Jesus' feet. We find how Jesus eventually responds to her in verse number 27. Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What does Jesus mean by that? What is Jesus telling her there? Naturally, Whenever a family would sit down to eat dinner in the first century, they wouldn't take their bread and make sure the dogs were fed first. They would make sure the children were fed first. Back in this time, they didn't view dogs the same way that we do. In our culture, dogs are what? They're cute, cuddly, they're pets. They basically become a part of the family. It's not the way that it was in the first century. Dogs were dirty and nasty, they lived on the streets, they ate garbage. And so when you're going to sit down to eat dinner, especially when the majority of families in the first century world would have struggled to have bread in the first place, you're not going to take the bread and throw it to these filthy dogs. You're going to make sure that the children have enough bread first. Then if you have some left over, you might consider giving it to the dogs. What does Jesus mean by that? I believe that Jesus is using that idea to present an illustration Of what his ministry is and who his ministry is for. The children representing the Jews, the dogs representing the Gentiles. Jews oftentimes call Gentiles dogs. That's a a term that they oftentimes use to describe and to throw down the Gentile. Well, you're just a dog. Jesus says, when it comes to my ministry, I'm here for the children first. I'm here for the Jews first. They have to be fed. And then whenever they're fed, I can move on to people like you. People who are the equivalent of a dog. Now go a little bit deeper. What does Jesus mean by that? He presents the same same order as Paul does in Romans 1 and verse 16 that the gospel was to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But what does Jesus mean by saying this? It sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Jesus goes into this house in secrecy, not wanting anyone to know. But then this woman shows up, probably with a large crowd of people. She's begging Him. She won't be quiet. He's ignoring her at first. Then he, the lady starts to annoy His disciples. It seems that Jesus gets a little bit annoyed and says, well, you're just a dog. I'm only here for the children. I'm not here for you. Well, while Jesus was a human, and Jesus did experience human emotions, I don't think that Jesus means these words in that way. I think as the master teacher, Jesus was playing devil's advocate. Jesus was intentionally being provocative. He was talking to her like any other Jewish rabbi would talk to her in order to pull out and to draw out this faithful and persistent response. How did the Jews view the Gentiles? They're unclean, they're filthy, they're impure, they're dirty. Jesus wants to break down that distinction. Jesus wants to show them by drawing out this faithful and persistent response from this Gentile woman that that's not the case. Gentiles can be righteous too. Gentiles can demonstrate faith too. I don't think that Jesus is sinning against this lady as people oftentimes say. I don't think that Jesus is insulting this woman. I think He's intentionally being provocative to draw out a faithful response from her so that Jews can see, oh, maybe... Maybe this distinction between clean and unclean people shouldn't exist. Yet it comes off rather harsh. Even though Jesus speaks to her in that way, she wasn't deterred from her mission. She continued to be persistent. When Jesus speaks to her in that way, she doesn't walk away with her tail tucked. She doesn't walk away offended. But instead, she gives, gives an amazing response of humility that we're going to talk about more in just a few minutes. Whenever we look at the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, it was a faith that was all about persistence. What about us? What about your faith and my faith? Is our faiths, faiths of persistence? Now think about Walt Disney. Did you know that he was fired from a newspaper for not having any good ideas? And he went bankrupt several times before he eventually built Disneyland in California. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time. Anybody want to debate that? Well, we can talk about that after services. Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time, didn't make the varsity team his sophomore year of high school. But yet we see what he came out to be. Beethoven's teacher called him a horrible composer whenever he was first learning to play the piano. Winston Churchill failed the sixth grade three times. He had to retake that math class three times before he finally passed it, and he wasn't prime minister until the age 62. Henry Ford, kind of like Walt Disney, went bankrupt several times before he built his empire, the Ford Motor Company, and then went on to experience a lot of success. These individuals, these men ran into obstacles. There were bumps along the way, but they didn't give up. They continued in persistence. And because they continued in persistence, good things happened. Persistence can be so helpful to us in a lot of different areas of our lives, especially when it comes to our relationships with God. Especially when it comes to spiritual things. Have you ever been here before? I'm going to present this request to God. Something that I really want. I need God's help. I need God's guidance. I need God's healing. So I'm going to ask Him for this. I wake up the next day. Nothing changes. So just forget about it. I'm never going to ask about that again. You invite somebody to church. You ask somebody to study the Bible with you. And they say no the first time. Well, that person's a lost cause. I'm never going to invite them to church again. I'm never going to see if they're interested in Bible study ever again. What does Jesus teach us in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1? Jesus teaches us as his disciples that we ought to always pray and never lose heart. That's about persistence. As we walk with Jesus, we're going to experience bumps in the road. We're going to experience difficulties. We're going to experience hardship. But that doesn't mean that we give up. That doesn't mean that we throw in the towel. We should always pray and never lose heart. Learn a lesson from the Syrophoenician woman and have a faith that is built on truth, but then a faith that is defined by persistence. Number three, when we look at the faith of this Syrophoenician woman, she also had a faith that was defined by great humility. When you look at her at the end of chapter 7 and verse 25, where is she? Well, she comes up to Jesus, she points her finger in His face and says, let me tell you how things are going to go, buddy. Let me tell you what you're going to do for me. Now, when you look at the end of verse 25, this woman is down at Jesus' feet as a demonstration of submission and humility, demonstrating that she recognizes Jesus is greater than she is. She falls down at Jesus' feet and not only implores him with persistence, but also humility. We mentioned her response to Jesus' statement in verse 27. In verse number 28, the Bible says that she answered him, Yes lord you think she understood who jesus was she had heard about jesus she responds yes lord let the children be fed first it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs she said yes lord yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs isn't that an amazing response she doesn't get offended and walk away She doesn't go off on Jesus. She doesn't throw up her hands and say, well, you're just another one of those Jews. You're treating me like everybody else would. Now she responds with great humility. Yes, Lord, I understand. You're right. But you have to understand what I'm asking for. I'm not asking for the whole loaf of bread. I'm just asking for some crumbs. Jesus, your ministry, your power doesn't have to be completely directed towards people like me. Let the Jews continue to feast. Continue to minister to them. But if you can just give me a little bit, I know that's going to be enough. You don't have to give me the whole loaf of bread. I'm willing and content to just take the crumbs. It's a faith that's defined by persistence, but it's also a faith that is defined by Humility. I like what Augustine has to say about humility. He says, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. Exactly right, isn't it? If we're going to follow after Jesus, then we are to be people of humility. Maybe sometimes we approach Jesus like the Syrophoenician woman and we have everything planned out. Jesus, I've thought through this. I've had several different options and I know the best way. I know how this needs to work out. As Christians, we're not those who stand in front of Jesus with our fingers pointed, telling Him how things should be. As Christians, we are those falling down at Jesus' feet, saying, look, you don't have to give me the the whole loaf of bread. I'm willing to just take the crumbs. Peter, who would have witnessed this event, in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6 says, humble yourselves. That's a command. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you. Whenever we humble ourselves under God's hand, He's going to be the one who exalts us. And that leads us to our fourth and final point that we'll mention here real briefly. The Syrophoenician finally had a faith that was rewarded in verses 29 and 30. Her faith was built and established on truth. Her faith was defined by persistence and humility. And it was a faith that was rewarded by Jesus. Jesus says in verse number 29, after she gives that great expression of faith and humility that he was searching for, he said, for this statement, without the statement, this reward wouldn't have happened. But for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter." Go back home. Go back to your daughter. She is completely healed. I don't know about you, but I might have wanted to take Jesus by the hand and lead Him back to the house. Let Him take care of it there. But that's not what she did. She went back to the house. Probably like she left her daughter. The daughter was lying in the bed, but this time there was something different. The demon was gone. She had a faith that was ultimately rewarded By Jesus. Do you want your faith to be rewarded by King Jesus? Build your faith on the truth. The solid foundation of what God has revealed to us in the pages of His Word. Have a faith of persistence. A faith that refuses to give up whenever things get difficult and obstacles get in the way. Have a faith that's defined by humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And what happens when that takes place? So that He may exalt you hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever whoever would draw near to god must believe that he exists and that he what rewards those who seek him so what can we do this week to have the faith of a Phoenician woman what can we do this week to build our faith on truth maybe we need to spend some time in bible study and devotion Maybe we need to spend some time in Bible reading, meditating and reflection. What can we do this week to make sure that our faith is defined by persistence? If something difficult were to happen this week, would you continue to put one foot in front of the other? Would you continue in persistence? What can we do to make sure that would take place? What can we do this week to have a faith that's defined by humility, that it's not all about me, but I'm going to be the one falling down at Jesus' feet, content with the crumbs? What can we do this week to make sure that one day our faith is going to be rewarded by hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. If we can help you tonight to have the faith of a Syrophoenician woman, we would love to do that. As together we stand and sing our invitation song.